You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Perhaps reach a better understanding of Jesus, perhaps the Gospels themselves, you know, the Gospel writers and their take on Jesus. That's kind of the same thing to me. Uh, But today we're looking at Matthew 15. Is my mic cutting out? I don't think so. It sounds good. We'll go with it. We'll go with it. Uh, We're looking at Matthew 15 today very controversial passage where Jesus calls a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, a dog. Uh, Let's read that now. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Quick pause there. He's left Israel. Tyre and Sidon are, this is Gentile territory, okay? Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What a comeback. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you, or done for you, as you wish. And her daughter was healed immediately. Now, before we get into the difficult nature of this passage and Jesus calling this woman a dog, Um, I think it's important to point out that this message actually contains, this passage contains a very powerful and important message that is really the main point of this passage. And before we get, I don't want the main point of this passage to get lost in our discussion this morning and our focus on Jesus calling this woman a dog. The main point of this message is really about the fact that Jesus was sent to the Gentiles. The main point of this passage really is about God's universal and unconditional love for everybody everywhere and how everyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, everyone is included. This passage is fundamentally about this, this radical idea of God's unconditional and universal love and inclusion of everyone everywhere. And it's therefore also a critique. It functions as a critique of the racial and religious animosity and the racial and religious bigotry that existed between Jews and Gentiles during Jesus' day. The fact is, first century Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. First century Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs because they saw them as other than, kind of subhuman, filthy, ritually unclean. You know, back then, dogs were not kept as, you know, like cute and cuddly pets. There wasn't that kind of a pet culture. They didn't have dog rescues and dog shelters. Dogs were seen like rats. You know, they lived on the streets. They ate garbage. They were seen as a public nuisance, public health hazard, right? So to call somebody a dog back then, even today, to call somebody a dog is not a term of endearment, right? Um, But much more so back then. Dogs were not held in any kind of an esteem. Uh, if, if somebody owned dogs, they were kept for utilitarian purposes, right? For as guard, like a guard dog, right? Or perhaps as a farm animal, I don't know. But they were not 
kept like they are today. They were not seen as pets or cute and cuddly things. Um, so this was a racial slur. Let's be very clear about this. For Jesus to call her a dog, this is a, both a religious and racial slur. This was an act of racial and religious bigotry. Um, and for Jesus to help this woman and to, you know, change his mind and say, woman, great is your faith. This is a profound shift. I want, I want you to catch that this morning. This, this is a big deal, what happens in this passage. This represents a 180, a profound shift in the way that Jesus and the way the gospel writers understood what it meant to be his disciple. It meant a complete shift in the way that you understand who is other than and who's inside and outside the kingdom of God, you know, who is acceptable, who is loved of God. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be the people of God? This was, this represented a radical shift on that level in those matters. And yet Jesus first engages with this woman. Um, he, he first engages in the very racial and religious bigotry he ends up subverting. He first engages in the racial and religious bigotry he ends up subverting. Twice he says something here really problematic, right? At first, now, Jesus is walking through the streets and there's a throng of people following him, right? There's a crowd around him and this woman is shouting from the margins, you know, Jesus, son of David, she calls him, which is a messianic title. You know, she's communicating that she recognizes his power and authority, his role. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And how does he respond? Well, first of all, his disciples say, Somebody shut her up. She's driving us crazy. And, Jesus, and they say this to Jesus, essentially. And Jesus says, ah, you know what? He kind of agrees with them. He says, I wasn't sent to, I wasn't sent to help her. I'm sent to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He kind of agrees with them. That's the first problematic thing he does. And then she throws herself down in front of him. You know, he was ignoring her before, right? Kind of brushing her off. But then she makes it impossible for him to continue to ignore, ignore her. She throws herself down in front of his path. Jesus responds by saying, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She responds incredibly, playing along with his metaphor. Yeah, but you know what? Even the dogs, man, eat the crumbs from their master's table. Take that, Jesus. <laughs> And he says, and you imagine, you know, the attitude here, the shift. He's like, wow, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you wish. He was blown away. Somebody corrected God, and God was like, damn. <laughs> That's what's going on here. So it's a weird passage. Jesus does not come out looking so good, right? Even though he turns around and does the right thing, he, uh, he doesn't look so good. And all of the church understands that. Let me be very clear about that. This, this passage has been a problem in the church for centuries because of that, even in conservative traditions. They recognize Jesus does not come out looking so good here. We've got to do something with this. And so the church over time has come up with a few different ways to massage this passage, to interpret it, to alleviate Jesus of any wrongdoing, because of course Jesus can't be wrong. So the church has come up with a few different arguments for this, and I'll just briefly touch on them. One such argument is that when Jesus calls her a dog, he's not really calling her a dog. He's using a term for like a young dog, like a puppy. So this is kind of a term of endearment. He's calling her like, oh, you little rascal, 
you know, something, something like that. That's kind of the, but again, that kind of ignores the fact that to call somebody a dog is never a compliment. And to be perfectly frank, again, back then, dogs, whether they were young or all old, little or small, or big or small, they were seen like rats. Dogs were like rats in the ancient world, ate garbage, lived down the street, ritually unclean, right? So the puppy argument doesn't hold a lot of water. The other argument I've heard made is that um, it's perfectly right that Jesus calls her a dog because Gentiles, anybody outside the covenant, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection. We were all dogs. We're all scum of the earth. We're all pieces of trash, according to God, especially before Jesus' death and resurrection and before faith in Christ functioned as a way of eliminating us of our sins or purging us of our sins and wrongdoings or our, our moral failure. You know, our, our, we're like dirty rags before God, we're told, right? So it's perfectly right. So Jesus calls her a dog. She's, she's doomed to eternal torment. She's an object of wrath. Who cares if he calls her a piece of trash? You know? Jesus is right. That's who, she, that's, who, that's who we all are. That's another argument. Others would simply say, Jesus is God and God is sovereign. And beyond our judgment and understanding, if he wants to call someone a dog or, or a piece of trash, that is his right because he's God. And we just need to trust he had a good purpose for it. Who are you? human being to judge the most high. Doesn't matter what he says and does. God can torment somebody in hell for all of eternity. Doesn't matter. He's God. It's right and it's just because he does it. Period. End of story. It's like the argument some make today for, you know, Trump's innocence and everything. He's the president. He gets to do whatever he wants. The, the rules don't apply. Sovereign, his sovereignty. Right? His ways are above our ways. Who are you to judge him? That, that's the other argument. I think all of those arguments are problematic <laughs> for various reasons. We won't get into all the reasons. We can imagine some of the reasons. Theological, philosophical, moral, right? But not the least of which is that they're all a way of avoiding, I think, a more meaningful encounter with this text and embracing the fact that Jesus actually uses a racial slur here and does something wrong and has a change of heart. Jesus changes his mind. Jesus changes his tune, you could say. This is, of course, intolerable for many Christians. Uh, and it's why they bend over backwards trying to explain it away. Because they, I don't know about you, but I was raised being taught that Jesus is sinless and perfect and has to be so, so that he can be a propitiation for our sins. That if Jesus wasn't perfect, in every definition of the term perfect. If Jesus wasn't perfect, then he could not have been a proper sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, we are not saved. We are not redeemed. You know, God demanded a, a spotless lamb to sacrifice to appease his wrath and his justice. So Jesus had to be perfect. That's, that's the, the conservative thinking, I guess you would say, on this one. But what if that kind of theology, that kind of atonement theory, would alien to Matthew, as I think it was. What if that kind of theology, that kind of systematic theology, that kind of atonement theory, was completely foreign to Matthew or whoever wrote this gospel? What if their understanding of Jesus was much more human than we think? What if their understanding of Jesus was that of a man who, like all of us, needed to grow and evolve in his understanding of God and his ways? What if? Now, I know that's a controversial idea, and before we get into it, I, I want to briefly say that 
This is what happens when your sacred text is basically stories. <laughs> you know, our Bible, it's not a rule book. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, a series of commandments, or just somebody spouting off trying to articulate the metaphysical nature of God and how God works. No, our sacred text is a collection of stories. It is a collection of narratives. This is what happens. Stories. You know, the purpose of a story, well, stories can have multiple meanings, right? This is the first problem with stories. Stories are left open to interpretation. They can have multiple meanings. Their purpose isn't to directly tell us what to do or to think, but to invite us to think for ourselves. A story's purpose is to spark our imagination. Think about that. What is a story's purpose? It's to spark our imagination and to ask us, what does this mean to you? And for me, this story means, reveals a very human Jesus. And part of what I think it means to be human is to be a product of your culture and your times, a product of the world in which you live, for better or for worse. You know, each of us inherits attitudes, ideas, values from our family, right? From our culture, from our educational background, from our friends, right? We all inherit these deep-seated values and attitudes from the world in which we grew up. And we can't help it. We don't, even, we don't even know they're there, quite honestly. They function like a kind of unconscious property or like the operating system on a computer, right? You don't actually see the operating system, but it's always running in the background, controlling everything you see. Now th think of our worldview as like a lens that you look through. You know, when you look through a lens, you're not looking at the lens, but you're looking at the world through the lens. And the lens controls everything you see. This is the way ideology works on the level of the unconscious. You don't actually see your ideology, but it controls everything you see. This is true for Jesus just as much as it is for us. And so I think Jesus was reflecting this in our text today. When he, when he called this Canaanite woman a dog, he was echoing the stereotypes and the biases that he inherited from his culture, from his family. And just like all of us, he needed to evolve and grow and more embody the ways of God. And he did. The fact is that Jesus had a major change of heart here. There's an, I don't think there's any getting around that. This is a 180. He started out saying one thing, and ended up doing another. There's no getting around that. He evolved, and in no small way. This is no small incident. Now again, I know that that's a pretty controversial idea. I don't know about you, but I was raised being told that Jesus was absolutely perfect in every way from birth, right? He never misspoke. His, his, I, I was raised to assume his grammar was always perfect, that he was like the perfect kid in school that always got 100% on every test. He Never wrong, even on G math, you know. <laughs> he was perfect in every possible meaning of the term. He never misunderstood anybody, <coughs> right? Never ever did anything that could be considered inconsiderate or unfair, even as a child, we're told, right? Uh, he never had to apologize. Can you imagine never having to apologize to anybody or anything your whole life? even on a minor thing, right? This is the image of Jesus I was raised on. I think that understanding of Jesus robs him of his, of his humanity. I think it strips him of what it means to be human. And I need a drink of water. 
<coughs> Forgive me. For I have sinned. I think Jesus was an actual human being with dirt under his nails, sweat on his face. I think he got tired. I think he got cranky. I think he got hungry and sick. He needed to use the bathroom. Needed to bathe. We don't like to think of Jesus like this, do we? But this is, this is what it means to be incarnated, to be enrobed in human flesh. To be to arrive in space-time, to be, to be enrobed not just in human flesh, but in human culture. As broken as it is, just as his body was frail and human, so was the culture he was born into and grew up in. We don't like to think about that. We're okay with Jesus getting tired and hungry, but we're not okay with him being part of a broken or frail culture and being affected by that in some problematic ways. But I think this is exactly what it means to be human to find ourselves in history, in a particular time and place, in a particular family, a particular community. There's good things and bad things always about these, these locales, right? We know Jesus suffered from fear and doubt. Garden of Gethsemane, night of his arrest, sweating drops of blood, begging his friends to stay awake and pray with him. God, begging human beings to, to comfort him. Here we find God in the person of Jesus alone and suffering and weak, terrified. At the cross, he cries out in despair and doubt, God, why have you forsaken me? For a moment, Jesus exhibits a kind of atheism. I am forsaken of God. God is not here. God is nowhere. God, where the hell are you? Who doesn't say that? This is, this is human. He is a human being. The church would have us forget all of this. You know, the church would have us forget all of this. And, and instead believe in a kind of Superman. I have no use for a Superman Jesus anymore. Zero use. That kind of so-called perfection strips him of all humanity and thereby makes him imperfect to me. And maybe the problem is that we don't understand what the New Testament means when it says that Jesus was perfect. Hebrews 5.8 says, although, although he was God's son, he learned, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect through suffering, he became, he became the source of salvation for all. He wasn't born that way. He became perfect. He had to be made perfect through suffering. Suffering on behalf of others, laying his life down for the cause of the oppressed. This is how he was made perfect. This is how he became salvation for all of us. Perhaps perfection is not about never ever making a mistake in anything you think, say, or do, but about a life of loving service, a kind of orientation, a way of living for others and laying your life down for the world and for the cause of justice and righteousness. It's not about this kind of pedantic way of looking at perfection and in every way. Nothing is ever done wrong or said wrong or whatever. Perhaps this is what Jesus means when he says, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. I don't know about you, but I, I've struggled with that passage in the past. How am I supposed to be perfect? 
perfect as Jesus is perfect? How is that even possible? Perhaps he's not giving us some kind of unrealistic ideal that we have to work for perfection. No, no, he's calling us towards an orientation, a way of life, lived in loving service of others, a way of life that lays its, where we lay ourselves down on behalf of others and specifically for causes of justice and peacemaking and compassion and righteousness. So there's a certain definition of perfection that I ascribe to Jesus, but by that I don't mean that he ever, ever, never, ever made a mistake or said something problematic. Jesus was perfect because his life was orientated correctly, because he's laid his life down for others. Anybody who does that, in my book, has achieved a kind of perfection and righteousness that few ever will. This is a kind of perfection. Anybody who lays down their life, who goes to their death for the cause of justice, that person has achieved a level of perfection few ever will. And I think this understanding of Jesus is grace-filled. I think it's liberating, and I think it can help us realize that there is no shame in in evolving. If Jesus had to evolve, (laughs) we all have to evolve, right? I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, but today is Groundhog Day. How many of you know that today is Groundhog Day? This is not an official part of the church calendar, by the way. <laughs> you will not find a liturgy for Groundhog Day. But I think maybe there should, maybe this is a liturgy for Groundhog Day. And, and by that I mean the movie Groundhog Day with Barry and Andy McDowell. Anybody ever seen that movie from the mid-90s? Great, great film. And part of the reason I like it is not just because I love Bill Murray. Who doesn't love Bill Murray, right? But um, it has a great, Um, So I'm going to ruin the movie for you here this morning. So spoiler alert, okay, 30, what is it, 25 years old? Um, Bill Murray plays this prima donna TV weatherman who thinks he's a celebrity. He's a total jerk to everybody. He just thinks he's a big shot and he works as like a TV weatherman in, I think, what is it, um, Pittsburgh, right? But every year he's assigned by his network to go and cover the Punxsutawney Groundhog Day Festival in this rinky-dink little town where he basically has to just, you know, stand in front of, like, the groundhog hole and say, here comes fall, you know? Um, And he hates it and thinks it's beneath him. And again, he's awful to everybody. But what happens is he goes to Punxsutawney, he shoots the special, but then he goes to bed that night, gets and wakes up, and it's Groundhog Day again. (laughs) And he has to repeat this day over and over again. The, The a day that he absolutely hates, where he has to basically cover the Groundhog Day Festival in Punxsutawney, PA, and, you know, hobnob around town with all of these small-town folks, which he hates as well. But he's stuck, and we're never told if it's God that makes him repeat Groundhog Day over and over and over again, but you're left to assume some supernatural power is punishing him or trying to teach him something. But at the end of the story, after basically living the same day over and over again for years, he comes to a realization that he actually gets to choose whether or not he wants to be miserable in this life or he wants to actually find ways of making himself better. So at the end of the movie, he actually uses his eternity in Punxsutawney to basically better himself and become a better person. And it's only then, after he falls in love with Annie McDowell, but becomes better person and stops being a complete jerk that suddenly the curse is broken and he wakes up and it's February 3rd. The, the, the message of the movie is simply this. It's kind of similar to what we're talking about this morning. You can't move on in life until you grow up. You can't move on in life until you grow up. 
until you evolve emotionally and spiritually into a better person. We all get stuck in patterns and behaviors and lifestyles and places in life because we haven't evolved enough. We all have to evolve. We all have to grow up spiritually, emotionally, right? In the same way that we got to grow up physically. And Jesus had to grow up physically too, right? Wasn't born. He didn't just arrive on earth as an adult, perfect in every way. No, he had to grow up. He went through childhood, right? We're told. Adolescence, acne, that awkward stage in junior high we all hate, right? He had to, he had to grow up. He had to evolve. Just like all of us. And I think it's normal. It's totally normal to feel ashamed of the fact that we used to be somebody, you know, we don't really like anymore. It's totally normal to feel ashamed of who we used to be, you know, when we were anti-gay or anti-black or fundamentalists and thought everybody was going to hell but us. It's totally normal to feel ashamed about that. But there's no shame in evolving. There's no shame in evolving and having to grow because we all have to do it. And I think understanding this can help us be more compassionate with each other. Be more compassionate with people around us and in our lives that maybe are not as evolved or as woke <laughs> as maybe we are, right? This doesn't mean that we're not honest. It doesn't mean that we don't confront things. We absolutely confront things and speak out. We absolutely do. But it does mean that we treat people with compassion and as works in progress because we all are. I'm reminded of the words of Ojiomo Oluo, a black activist, who says this, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be anti-racist. In other words, you don't have to be perfect to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself, and it's the only way forward. Being anti-racist, I think, is what we see Jesus exhibiting here this morning in our passage. He's fighting, you could say, he's fighting racism in himself and in his world. He's fighting the religious and racial bigotry that he grew up in and that he inherited from his culture. Remember, to call a Canaanite woman a dog, that is an act, that is a racial slur born out of both religious and racial animosity that existed between first century Jews and their Gentile neighbors. Jesus is being anti-racist here, not because he's perfect, but because he's choosing to fight racism in himself and bigotry in himself. And in this way, we can say he is perfect. Jesus is perfect. And he is a model for all of us and how to be in this world. You know, the fact is none of us will ever, ever be completely free of unjust and problematic ideas and behaviors because that's just what it means to be human and to live in history. Think of this being like the air we breathe in L.A. Andre Henry loves this metaphor, and so do I. Think of this being like the air we breathe here. You know, the same air pollution we breathe in is the same air pollution we breathe out. <laughs> we can't help it. It's, it's the world in which we live. The world is built on classism, exploitation of the poor, racism, sexism, homophobia. And for this reason, we need grace for each other and to understand that the goal is not some unrealistic ideal of perfection whereby we never say or do anything wrong, but it's about a life orientated towards, towards justice, a, a humility and willingness to change, a kind of openness and listening to the other, a willing to be, willingness to admit our wrongs and to repent, to evolve 
to grow. That's what I think we find here in Christ, who's an example for all of us about what it means to be godly, what it means to be divine. That's not always pretty, but it's the only path. Um, so that's my message <laughs> for this morning, and I want to open it up now for, for dialogue. We've got a few minutes left. Um, you know, every week we take a moment for questions. So if you have questions or comments about this text, or perhaps, let me put it like this. I'm curious about hearing how, are, how have you had to evolve? What are specific issues in your life? It could be religious faith issues, could be philosophical issues, could be a political issue, but what are like the big issues that you've found in your life that you've had to evolve on to really grow as a person? Anybody want to share? Again, no shame in evolving. We've all certainly needed to do it. Any questions or anybody want to share? Yeah, Jen. It's funny that um, Ashley and I were kind of having a conversation about perfection like this morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of like if, if someone grows up with um, unhealthy parents, like so many of us do, a lot of times the reaction in the child is either they think they're worthless and not worth anything, and that brings its own set of uh, issues in adulthood, or they think they're better than everyone else, and that's a whole other set of issues. But so often, there's no in-between. Um, and my thought on that is like, even in our culture, like, like American culture specifically, perfection is like your goal. Every, everyone needs to be perfect. You need to do your best all the time. There's no middle ground of being perfectly imperfect, which is so much healthier and safer to teach a child or, or yourself as an adult that this imperfection is okay and that's where you're supposed to be because you can't be perfect. So that was just funny that that was a conversation that I had this morning. <laughs> Yeah, the, the self-help industry, I think, teaches us that, you know, we can all achieve greatness. And, and you know, like Tony Robbins sells $5,000 tickets for his weekend-long seminars on how to, you know, achieve greatness and, and perfection in a way. And, uh, and none of us want to admit that yeah, it's not going to work out that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to embrace our brokenness, right? Our imperfection. We can find perfection in the imperfection. That's a, that isn't... You, you can't sell $5,000 tickets selling that message. Yeah, yeah. That's good, Jen. Somebody else. Yeah, Tom. Just a question for you. Um, when I, so, for context, the kind of lack of understanding I have about the Bible, sometimes I think, you know, Jesus was born and the Bible was written on the same day. The whole thing, start to end, was kind of, you know, like that's kind of what I grew up, never really thinking like that probably didn't happen. Um, and so my question was kind of, when was Matthew sort of, I guess, published? And then how did that, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I imagine if there was some wrestling over the interpretation of this passage and Jesus being imperfect, then that probably impacted 
a lot of things going on. So I'm kind of curious to know sort of when that happened and maybe some of the impact of that. Um, Fuller alums or people in the know help me out here. I think, well, Mark was written first, but the Gospels were written after Paul. So we're talking about after 70 AD. In the 60s were the earliest. And some of the Gospels might not have been written after... Yeah, 30 years after Christ. That was some of the earliest estimates. We're talking like 60, but I've heard conjecture that it was after the fall of Jerusalem, you know, north of 70 AD. But Mark was written first, and Matthew and Luke, these are called the synoptic gospels because Matthew and Luke are synopsises of Mark. They use Mark as a primary source. Um, I mean, they were written much longer, and Jesus didn't write anything. I mean, these were his followers that wrote this stuff down. Um, you know, it's important also, Tom, you raised a good point, that for the er earliest and original readers of this gospel, uh, the earliest and original followers of Jesus, I think him using this racial slur, they wouldn't even bat it an eye at it. We're reading this as moderns, as Western, you know, post-enlightenment, liberal, you know, Americans. And by liberal, I don't mean on the left. I just mean people that, that are, you know, care about human rights. Okay, so liberal ideology came out of Western Europe in the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance. Well, what am I talking about? French Revolution, American Revolution, this care about human rights, individual freedom, right? And so we as modern readers who are immediately focused on like a laser on the fact that Jesus uses a racial slur here because of our culture, right? We're reading this as modern readers. And in the ancients, I don't think that we even batted an eye at Jesus. The meaning of this passage is that Jesus was sent for the Gentiles. It's about the awesome love and inclusion of God and unconditional universal love for Gentile and Jew. And, you know, it was a critique, actually, of the religious and racial animosity. But I, theologically, I don't think Matthew saw this as controversial that Jesus used a racial slur. Again, but we're reading it as moderns and evangelicals who grew up in, you know, conservative traditions that taught us this kind of atonement theory that Jesus had to be perfect in absolutely every way so that he could be a propitiation for our sins. But again, that's, that's a reading that I don't think Matthew had. I think for them, they were much more comfortable with the human Jesus, the suffering Christ, the crucified God. I mean, for them, Jesus was divine. Certainly he was divine. But they didn't bifurcate his being into human and divine the way you know, we've been doing since the Middle Ages. So that, that's a complex question with a complex answer. Um, but it's very important. And these things are not simple. You know, of course, we don't allow it to be simple here at Central. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, Corey. So this is kind of an adjacent question. Um, and it might sound like I'm criticizing uh, your sermon, which actually I'm really comfortable with. Yeah, no, I, I know, I know, I know. But I mean, like, I am comfortable with what you're talking about, the idea of God changing his mind and, and, and evolving in a conversation. So it's more that I'm just curious, kind of adjacently, like, you know, we believe that Jesus said something along these lines. You know, of course, we also think that the Gospels kind of took their own um, liberties with, with it a little bit. But l let's just say that Jesus did say something along these lines in this situation. You know, I, I guess the only thing that holds me back from going, oh yeah, like this is totally what he meant when he said this. Like we didn't hear tone, you know, we don't know the context for how he said it to her. It's like he could have been almost raising the question as like, well, you know what 
our life is here in here in um, uh, the Middle East, like, wh what do you have to say about that? And her response is, even the dogs can have... Cr yeah, so it's like, we don't... Uh, like, the reason I'm bringing that up is just because... Yeah, what do you have to say about the tone of, of Jesus? That it could just be his posturing might be... Yeah. I'll say two things to that. Uh, the first of which is, we only have the text the way we have it. In other words, what I'm saying is we don't know what the historical Jesus actually said and did. We have what Matthew or what Ma the person who wrote Matthew gives us. So you're, you're raising a question of did the actual historical Jesus of Nazareth actually do this? Did he actually put it this way? We don't really know. Um, we know we're just forgetting what the disciples remembered and perhaps what they're seeing through the prism of time as well. But the meaning of the passage is still what's important. But um, I, I, again, so I want to I say that, but I also want to say that I, th I think it's important for us to read it as it's presented. And it's, and it's not presented in all that nuance that you're putting it in, but it's, it's possible that what you're saying is actually what happened. But we have no access to what actually happened. We only have what the gospel writers give us. Jesus didn't write anything down. His disciples and followers wrote it down you know, decades after he was gone. Um, and what we're getting is their perception of Jesus, which is really important. No, that, and I'm saying that's a good thing. And it shows the enduring memory of Jesus and how powerful and how significant he was for his time and place where people, you know, poured themselves out over pages to record this stuff and to try to give us their best take on him. Um, so I think the text is authoritative in the sense that it, it does give us, I think, a, a picture of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, but does it give us every detail right? Well, I don't think so. And, you know, so I, I guess that's the answer to your, your question. But we have to, again, we have to deal with the text that's actually given to us and how it's actually presented. And the language matters. And so I'm just trying to respect the actual language as we find it. Does that make sense? Yeah, Jason. And there's also at least two other racist, there's also at least two other racist comments in, I think in Matthew about Canaanites. There's the woman at the well, who he doesn't say nice things to. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote. And then there's also the Good Samaritan, where the reason it's a shocking story is because the Canaanite, or the Samaritan, is the one who helps the guy. So, I mean, I don't think we can say that it wasn't, if it was the author, the author was consistent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right, somebody else? Questions, comments? D points of disagreement. You can disagree with the pastor here on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Louise. Uh, yeah, I think this kind of just became one of my favorite passages, just yeah. because of uh, <laughs> uh, because of the evolution. I think I I grew up Catholic, and there was this whole perfection thing that you had to achieve, and it was stifling, and it was filled with shame. And at any moment you made a mistake, you felt just soul crushing, and you could never, you know, be as perfect as Jesus. And I think as I've grown up and kind of uh, uh, welcome my human side a bit more, I think. This shows just, I really appreciate the evolution aspect of this piece and how people make mistakes, that's part of being human. And it's the way that you uh, come back from that mistake that really matters. 
And I think that is inspiring to me because a lot of times when you make a mistake, you just kind of stay there or then you defend yourself very strongly like, no, it's not a mistake. This is, I did a perfect thing just now. And, uh, and, um, and I think if you just are you humble, like, no, I made a mistake, I accept it, but now I'm evolved and I moved on, that's super inspiring and it, and it gives more freedom or more wiggle room, I don't know, to, to live and it puts less of a stressor on your life and I don't know, I really like it. I really like this piece, yeah. I'm so glad you feel that way because this is becoming one of my favorite passages too, but that's because we love deconstruction <laughs> and we, we like, you know, a very progressive take. Um, but it's not the favorite passage for a lot of people. And, for the, for, and that makes me like it more. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, Louise. Some, somebody else, anybody else? We've got a couple minutes to go. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for being here. We'll continue this fun journey into Jesus Rude and Confusing next week. Mm -hmm.